0: Following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right. Well, good morning and a welcome to our fourth virtual Sunday of church here at Church of the Living God. Thanks again, Braden, for playing the piano for us as we prepare for this service. So I'd like to start once again with a prayer. As I mentioned, it's a previous week's. I'm purposely looking for prayers that other people are offering from around the world, just so as we pray, we're participating in the broader community of Christendom at this time. So this was actually a prayer that was posted by the Church of England, I believe, this past week. So would you join me in prayer? Let us pray to God, who alone makes us dwell in safety. For all who are affected by coronavirus through illness or isolation or anxiety, we pray that they may find relief At recovery, Lord, graciously hear us. For those who are guiding our nation at this time and shaping national policies, that they may make wise decisions, Lord, graciously hear us. For doctors, nurses, and medical researchers, that through their skill and insights, many will be restored to health, Lord, graciously hear us. For the vulnerable and the fearful, for the gravely ill and the dying, that they may know your comfort and peace. Lord, graciously hear us. We commend ourselves and all for whom we pray to the mercy and protection of God. Merciful Father, accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, last week was the first of three sermons that are leading us toward Easter Sunday. So last Sunday, we focused on the crucifixion. This Sunday, we're gonna focus on Silent Saturday, the day between crucifixion and resurrection. So I'm calling this sermon, When God is Silent. So the Bible's full of three-day stories. You've got Jonah in the big fish, you've got Joseph's brothers in jail, You've got the plague of darkness in Egypt for three days, Rahab hiding the spies, Jesus in the tomb, Paul's blindness after being struck by God. If you go through the Bible, there's a lot of three-day stories, and I got this idea, by the way, from someone named, uh, actually, I don't know who the speaker is. This was on Richmond Graduate University's. Uh, website, there was a teaching they gave called Saturday, Living Between Crucifixion and Resurrection. And if you check the notes I've posted online, you can go and listen to that original teaching as well. The third day is when bad stuff ends. So that's the day we celebrate. That's going to be next Sunday for Easter Sunday. But the conclusion of three-day stories aren't clear until the third day. So on day one and day two, people aren't sure how the story's going to end. So day one of a three-day story is often a brutal one. In the context of Easter, this is Crucifixion Friday, which is the first day of a three-day story. Those are hard days, because those are the days when it seems like, in the case of the life of Jesus, the death had won. But then there's the Saturday before Sunday, and that's kind of a weird time, because it's not the day that the tragedy occurs. It's not the day when resurrection brings hope and brings life. It's the troublesome and often very long middle day. So for us right now in the world with the coronavirus, it's not the day it became clear the coronavirus was the problem. It's not the day we get the all clear. It's this middle space that we're in. So here's what the Bible records the followers of Jesus doing between crucifixion of Friday and resurrection Sunday. And because there's different gospel accounts, not contradictory accounts, they just offer different details, I'm going to combine the accounts from Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. At the rising of the sun, after the Sabbath on the first day of the week, the two Marys and Salome came to the tomb to keep vigil. They brought sweet smelling spices they had purchased to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. Along the way, they wondered to themselves how they would roll the heavy stone away from the opening. Well, then they encounter the risen Jesus, and we pick up the story again. They brought this news back to all those who had followed him and were still mourning and weeping. They recounted for them and others with them everything they had experienced. The Lord's emissaries heard their stories as fiction, as a, as a lie. They didn't believe a word of it until Jesus appeared to them all as they sat at dinner that same evening. They were gathered together behind locked doors in fear that some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were still searching for them. Out of nowhere, Jesus appeared in the center of the room and said, may each one of you be at peace. Now, of course, we included a bit of resurrection hope, but the reason I just isolated those portions of the passage is that's what the Bible tells us. It's not a lot about what was happening among Jesus' closest followers between Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And here's what we see happening, at least five key things. Number one, they were keeping a vigil of mourning. Number two, they were planning how to perfume the body of the dead Messiah. Number three, they were hiding in fear. Number four, they were mourning and they were weeping together. And finally, they were refusing to believe that Jesus was alive. Now, honestly, uh, it's not a great resume builder. You would think that the biblical writers would be far more inclined to write something along these lines. As the disciples were praying and rejoicing over Jesus' impending resurrection, Mary returned and told them the good news, and they said, of course, we knew it all along. That's not what happened, of course, which is one reason you can take the Bible writers seriously, by the way. They're not afraid to be honest about the reality of the people who were following Jesus. When we meet them on Silent Saturday, they were mourning. They were weeping. They thought that their long-awaited Messiah... Had died. They thought he had failed. And that failure showed that he was not, in fact, the Messiah. This would have been, for many of them, a repetition of a story they'd seen unfold before in their culture. These people would arise. They would claim to be the Messiah. Rome would kill them. Their followers would scatter. Someone else would try to keep the movement going. It looked to them like this was another one of those stories. As far as they knew, Jesus wasn't coming back. So crucifixion Fridays are hard, but I wonder sometimes the silent Saturdays might be a bit harder in a different way. Because funerals are hard, but funerals are also full of adrenaline and crisis management and we're surrounded by report or by support. But it's the next day or the next two or three days when family drifts away, and friends go back to work, and now you're back into the routine or the closest thing you can find to a routine. And that's when Silent Saturday sets in. That's the loneliness and the emptiness. If you've experienced the death of someone you love, I think you probably know this routine, preparing for the funeral and the part of the funeral day. There's so much going on and you've got to stay focused and you're talking with people and they're giving their condolences and you're saying thank you. And there's, even in the midst of grief, some camaraderie, there's, it, it's all those things. And there's the crash that comes afterwards, That's the silent Saturday. And it's hard enough when it involves just earthly things, but what about when our relationship with God feels like this? There's a silent Saturday, and I don't know what the crash would be, but it's after some event, something of significance happens, and there's spiritual loneliness, and there's emptiness, and there's a feeling like uh, God is aloof, that maybe he's gone in some fashion, the heavens seem empty. It seems like our prayers don't go anywhere. Um, it just seems like God is silent. There's a song by Andrew Peterson called The Silence of God, and you're gonna see a link to the a, a YouTube video of it posted in the comment section on this particular thread. But the lyrics go like this. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heavens only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart. When he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not, when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, where they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to the cross? Then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden as silent as stone, All his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow was carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. And the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. John Ortberg tells the following story. From the time she was a young girl, Agnes believed, not just believed, she was on fire. She wanted to do great things for God. She said things such as she wanted to love Jesus as he had never been loved before. Agnes had an undeniable calling. She wrote in her journal that, My soul at present is in perfect peace and joy. She experienced a union with God that was so deep and so continual that it was to her a rapture. She left her home. She became a missionary. She gave him everything, and then he left her. At least, that's how it felt to her. Where is my faith, she asked. Deep down, there's nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. She struggled to pray. I utter words of community prayers and try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness that it has to give, but my prayer of union is not there any longer. I no longer pray. She still worked, still served, still smiled, but she spoke of that smile as her mask, a cloak that covers everything. This inner darkness continued on year after year with one brief respite for nearly 50 years. God was just absent. Such was the secret pain of Agnes, who's better known as Mother Teresa. So what do we do with the silent Saturdays of our lives? I want to offer a number of suggestions, not so that we'll suddenly and immediately be aware of God's presence, but so we can be purposeful and so that we can grow if that's the season in life that we're in. And I have four recommendations that I'm going to be pulling from what we see in the scenario with the followers of Jesus on Silent Saturday. Number one, be honest with God. The Bible gives us permission to voice our, our anger, our sorrow, our fear, our loneliness. Here's just a few Psalms. Psalm 6, 2-3. to Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord... How long? Psalm 13, 1 through 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 90, 13 and 14. Return, O Lord, how long? Picking up a theme here. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And then from Job, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. I feel like the Bible gives us permission to be honest, voicing to God how we're feeling. So after my dad died, I kept a journal for years in which I did my best to just be honest. I figured God already knew the recesses of my heart and the deepest thoughts I was having, and so I tried very hard just to put them down on paper paper, so I knew I was being honest in front of God and not trying to hide myself from him. I practiced that to some degree as well with my friends, though I think I probably wasn't as honest with them as I was just in my private journaling. I was talking to a friend recently who was going through some deep family wounding, and during our conversation, part of her lament was literally looking up toward the heavens and saying, why, what is going on, how are you letting this happen, where are you? And it was just, it was an honest expression of the pain of Silent Saturday. I have a hard time thinking that God feels dishonored by this. In fact, I I think God is probably honored that we cast the weight of these kind of burdens onto Him, knowing He's big enough to handle it, knowing that He understands us. I believe it was last week, N.T. Wright published an article just about lamenting during the time of the virus, and at one point he said this, at this point, the Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, come back into their own just when some churches seem to have given them up. Be gracious to me, O Lord, Praise the sixth psalm. I'm languishing. Heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. Why do you stand so far off, O Lord? Asked the tenth psalm plaintively. Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? And so it goes. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 13. And all the more terrifying, because Jesus himself quoted it in his agony on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, these poems often come out into the light by the end with a fresh sense of God's presence and hope. Not to explain the trouble, but to provide reassurance within it. But sometimes they go the other way. Psalm 89 starts off by celebrating God's goodness and promises, and then suddenly switches and declares that it's all gone horribly wrong. Psalm 88 starts in misery and ends in darkness, You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. So a word for our self-isolated times. It's part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain why all of this is happening, but to lament instead. As the Spirit laments within us, so we become, even in our isolation, small shrines, think temples, where the presence and healing love of God can dwell. So be honest with God. God knows our hearts and minds already. He already knows what our deepest internal struggles are. So voice them. And that could be just out loud to God in prayer. You could write like I did. You can uh, Zoom with a friend and express your lament through there. Lament's okay. God's big. He can handle it. It's not going to stop Resurrection Sunday. So first is be honest with God. Second is keep the vigils. So in spite of the pain and their loss, the Marys, they did what they'd always done, which was part of the ritual of living in Jewish community. In fact, what Jewish people did and what Jewish people believed in almost every aspect of their life was so intertwined that it's hard to imagine that the vigil was not considered part of what God would call them to do. We could sometimes have conversations today where we think of faith is this thing we believe, and then we have a separate discussion about things that we do. Uh, in fact, I wonder if part of James' letter about faith without works being dead might have been for the Gentiles who were coming in, because to the Jewish people, for most of their history, there was just no sense that what you believed and what you did would have been separated. They kept the vigils. There's something to be said about keeping the faith through an active commitment to obedience and faithfulness, no matter what we're experiencing. We keep the vigils. I'm going to offer four vigils that I think are helpful for us. Number one, pursue church community. The Bible is clear about this. We don't forsake gathering together. The disciples did at least one thing right on Silent Saturday. They hung out together in the midst of their grief. The Bible does not record that they scattered. They gathered and grieved together. It's important that we remain connected on silent Saturdays and not withdrawn. Scott, I'm gonna cough. (coughs) When the Marys came back and reported that Jesus had risen, it was in community that this happened. We stay in community because it's in community that we're challenged, we're encouraged, we're held close. We need to feel the nearness of God's people when God feels distant. And in, in fact, I wonder sometimes that that's not one of God's most practical ways to help us experience his presence, is to help us experience the presence of his people. Now if you're like me right now, you're probably feeling the importance of this. Uh, now I'll be honest, there's a bit of an introverted side of me that doesn't entirely mind some degree of social distancing. Uh, But there's a spiritual side of me that really longs for that reconnection. I was just realizing this week how much I just, I miss the interaction of literally rubbing shoulders with God's people. The church is God's body. The Bible uses this image. You and I are parts of that body. When we are separated, we wither. We're not meant for that kind of separation. We ought to be longing to be reconnected in person. The Bible stresses the crucial crucial nature of this. Uh, One of the blessings of living in an age of technology is that we can at least find ways to communicate and have relationship online or using the phone or something like that. I really encourage you to find ways to do that right now. Um, Yeah. That's one of the gifts of technology is to at least give us part of it, even if we're not in the exact same proximity. In fact, I'm going to step on toes for a little bit here. I think I can do that from a distance. Um, So if stats for church attendance are correct, some of you are in the process of experiencing your normal amount of yearly missed services. You're just experiencing them all in a row. And I don't mean to be rude, um, but don't make a big deal about this now if you didn't then. I'm not anti-vacation, but if travel sports and good beach days and staying out too late Saturday and camping and fishing took you away from church quite a few times this past year, well, then I don't think church has ever been the most important thing that oriented your weekend anyway. But if you're thinking... I don't think it's good to miss this much church during this time of social distancing. Please remember this feeling all year long. It will do your soul and your church community good. All right, so the first vigil was pursue church community. The second vigil is pray and read scripture. I don't know that there's a formula for the best way to do this, like read scripture. (laughs) That's the bottom line. There's all kinds of cool ideas about how to read through the Bible and how to order your prayers. And when I say cool ideas, I don't mean that in a dismissive way. I mean they're innovative and interesting ideas. Um, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach to everybody other than read the Bible. And then I would also encourage you to read the Bible in community and let me explain what I mean by that. So first thing is listen to like an audio Bible or read the Bible. Uh, This is the community part. Do this with the uh, structure around you of how other people are reading and understanding the Bible. So part of the belief of the Christian faith is that God inspired the Bible, but the Holy Spirit also inspires us so that we understand what the writers were presenting to us. Rather than relying simply on ourselves, we can rely on others. So when we gather together as a church, we're doing that here at our church in Message Plus, in conversations, in other classes. What you can do on your own is just go online. You can listen to lots of good preachers right now. You can find great podcasts from churches and church ministries and other organizations. There are theologically rich songs that you can be listening to and singing along with. Um, pray is another key way uh, of staying focused on the during this time. Pray alone, but also pray with others. You can call someone up, you can do a Zoom meeting or whatever, I'm just, I used Zoom last week, so it's in the front of my head. Lots of ways to be able to connect and do this together. Third part of keeping the vigils, and now this is a part of the community aspect of it, dive into devotionals. And by that, I mean podcasts and books and writings and teachings that will help to... um, Build your understanding of the scripture that you're reading. Once again, assuming that while the Holy Spirit works in us, the Holy Spirit works in others and inspires them as well to help us understand. So I like BibleGateway.com, BibleHub.com. Both of those are great research tools. That's BibleGateway.com, BibleHub.com. There's a website called Precept Austin. And it is a fantastic smorgasbord of materials for you to read. The Bible Project is just great for getting overviews of the Bible. You can go to our website and see the history of sermons and Facebook page posts. And like I said at the beginning, I'm trying to start to, I guess, populate our Facebook with different things that you could use as part of your own discipleship at this time. But it doesn't have to be us right I, we're not the only game in town that preaches the word of god faithfully but i would encourage you to dive into devotionals and then the fourth part about keeping the vigils is practice obedience i think one of the greatest dangers we face is kind of giving up on silent saturdays and saying something along the lines of you know what if i can't feel god's presence i'm just going to live as if god's not present and so we shake our fists at the heavens perhaps not literally but in some fashion, and then we begin to sow sinful things, and that is sinful things that can be forgiven and healed, but they'll nonetheless be harvested. So the Bible describes obedience as the path of life. I think there's something to be said about simply faithful obedience. It's wise and it's stabilizing. That too sows actions that will one day reap, but in this case, it won't be reaping the wages of sin. It'll be the fruit of righteousness. I also think obedience is a way that we're conformed to the image of Christ, and in that conforming, we begin to appreciate what it means to be like Jesus, and we can appreciate the wisdom of the one who guides our lives. One thing I'm glad I did during the silent Saturday years that followed my dad's death was that... I put one foot in front of the other as a Christian. And I don't mean that I did it perfectly. Uh, I don't mean that I did it energetically all the time. As I look back, sorry, my nose itches. As I look back, I often feel in many ways it was often begrudging and reluctant. And it was just going through the motions. But it was going through the motions on the path of life rather than going through motions on a path to death. Godly habits steady us in times of storm and in times of silence. I wonder if it's why I love a song that Ashley Cleveland sings. Song's called Don't Let Me Fall Too Far, which sounds like an odd request, but I get it. The song starts this way: I know the places where the ice is the ice is thin. Too many cracks you could slip right in. Don't let me fall too far. And as the song goes on to talk about these times in our life where we're venturing out onto thin ice, she concludes with, I'll hope for the things I cannot see. I know you'll finish what you started in me. Don't let me fall too far. It feels like an honest request, back to that being honest with God. Uh, Lord, it feels like I'm falling off the path. Oh, God, in your strength, steady me. Keep me going. Don't let me fall away from you. So practice obedience one step in front of the other, not because it will earn you favor or in somehow earn your right to have your sins forgiven or any of those things, but simply because it is the path of steadiness at the time of storm and silence. So when you start to on, stray on ice that you know is thin, get back on the path that's thick and solid and you walk on that path in life and toward life that you can't see at the time but is nonetheless there. And should I just note, right now, most of us are spending a lot of time at home. The path of obedience begins in our relationship with our family. It's a great time to to focus on what it looks like for us to walk in the path of life because not only does that steady us, but it it works for the flourishing of our family as well. Not just modeling the path of life, but I think there's something about that that spreads life around us. All right, so be honest with God. Keep the vigils. Number three out of four is learn to wait. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. listen, I'm not that good at waiting, frankly. I like problem resolution. If there's something that needs to be fixed, just give me a task. I can go about fixing things. So this shelter in place thing is kind of a weird time. I I know for all of us, and so I'm going to guess that my reflections on this are at least semi-normal. Okay, so what's the best thing I could do right now? Multiple memes have reminded me I can save the world by sitting on my couch. Now, that's an exaggeration, but the idea is that the best thing I can do is nothing. So doing nothing is doing something right now. It does not compute. That was my best robot voice. If you're like me, we like to be human doings. We want a task, and we forget what it's like to be human beings I know that can be kind of an overused cliche, but I think it has some wisdom for these times. The Bible talks a lot about the patience of God. That's probably more than a hint that we ought to be looking at what it looks like for us to grow as patients as God's people. John Bloom wrote an article called When God is Silent, and I thought what he had to say about times like this was interesting. Why is it that absence makes the heart grow fonder but familiarity breeds contempt. Why is water so much more refreshing when we're really thirsty? Why am I almost never satisfied with what I have, but I'm always longing for more? Why can the thought of being denied a desire for marriage or children or freedom or some other dream going places create in us a desperation we previously didn't have? Why is the pursuit of earthly achievement often more enjoyable than the achievement itself? Why do deprivation, adversity, scarcity, and suffering often produce the best character qualities in us, while prosperity, ease, and abundance often produce the worst? Do you see it? There's a pattern in the design of deprivation. Deprivation draws out desire. Absence heightens desire, and the more heightened the desire, the greater its satisfaction will be. It's in the morning that we will know the joys of comfort, Matthew 5, 4. It's the hungry and thirsty that will be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. Longing makes us ask. Emptiness makes us seek. Silence makes us knock, Luke eleven nine. 9. Deprivation is in the design of this age. We live mainly in the age of anticipation, not gratification. We live in the dim mirror age, not the face-to-face age, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. The paradox is that what satisfies us most in this age is not what we receive, but what we are promised. The chase is better than the catch in this age, because the catch we're designed to be satisfied with is in the age to come. It's in the desert. I'm sorry, it's the desert that awakens and sustains desire. It's the desert that dries up our infatuation with worldliness. It's the desert that draws us to the well of the world to come. I was thinking of this this week, thinking about this time of isolation, distancing, withdrawal, and waiting. It is a time of deprivation. What do we do with that? Is our response simply frustration? Because that's where I tend to go. Is my response simply frustration, or am I seeing this as a time where the longings that are arising out of me ought to be pointing me toward their fulfillment, and their ultimate fulfillment is always in Christ. I long for community right now in ways I didn't feel before community was taken from me. Okay, for one, like I said, I hope that is inspiring us, a renewed love for church gathering times when we begin to gather again. But also, what's it pointing me toward? Is it pointing me toward distraction? Is it pointing me toward more isolation? Is it... Is it pointing me toward reading the news and spending my whole day on Facebook? Or is it pointing me toward the ultimate solution for that, and that is Christ? Is this deprivation driving me toward the one who can resolve this for me? The more I thirst, am I going toward fountains that will dry up or toward the fountain that will never dry? So this waiting, this waiting has a lot to do with, uh, I think, introspection, Sitting with myself and asking myself the question, where am I going in times like this? What is this revealing in me as I sit and wait to be able to go again and do? This is an opportunity uh, to, it's an opportunity for introspection to be honest before God and say, okay, what am I learning about myself? What have I been tending to go to to fill these these places of emptiness in my life? What was my busyness distracting me from? What did always doing um, allow me to ignore now that I'm just sitting here and I'm just being more than I usually am? What does it look like to be in your presence? What is that being in your presence revealing about me? And then, Lord, is what's being shown to me driving me toward you? And that's where this, this being Actually, a very important time because it's an opportunity to focus on who I am in Christ, not simply what I do for Christ. I really wish we had Message Plus because I feel like we could spend 45 minutes unpacking that more. But I think I might be close to 45 minutes already on this message, so I'm going to keep going. Sometimes the best way to hand the weight of the world over is to hand it over to Christ. Sorry, I'm going to reread that sentence. Sometimes the best way to hand over the weight of the world is to wait on Christ. Yeah, we're experiencing deprivation from church meetings, physical contact with friends, going places. Uh, We could be experiencing a deprivation of job security, financial stability, or even health. Is this awakening a desire in us for the peace of God? Is this awakening in us a desire to be a particular kind of person in Christ? What does it look like to pursue God and a relationship with God in the midst of deprivation? David wrote in the Psalms that his soul longed for God like a deer pants for water. I've never seen a deer pant for water. But my assumption is it maybe looks a lot like a dog that pants for water and I have seen that. So If this is our situation, if we find ourselves panting for something, to whom or what are we turning? Remember Jesus' admonition to the Samaritan woman. He is the water that brings life. All right. Fourth point is a short one. First was be honest. Second was keep the vigils. The third was learn to wait. The fourth is don't confuse what we feel from what's real. So the followers of Jesus were huddling in their homes because they felt like it was over. It wasn't. Just because something feels a certain way doesn't mean it is. I heard a wise man once say, and I I would give credit, but I can't remember who it was. You will either judge truth by your feelings or you'll judge your feelings by what's true. So what might be true right now is that God feels absent But he's not. And if we're trying to ask the question, will my feelings then inform truth, or will actually objective truth form truth? God is present no matter how we feel, God is with us always. Why does he feel absent? I don't know. It could be that we're in rebellious sin and we're trying to create distance, it could be that we're tired. It could be that God's removed the sense of his presence as a way of transforming us into his image. Uh, Once again, with deprivation drawing out desire. It could be that we're distracted. I don't know the reasons, but I I do know this. God is near and God is faithful no matter how we feel. The sorrow of silent Saturday may last for a time, but joy comes in the morning of Easter Sunday, and next Sunday, we celebrate a risen savior as Silent Saturday gives way to Resurrection Sunday. Lord, I'm grateful that you are a God who is near to us, a God who is always present, a God whose love and care and compassion and mercy and grace are always with us. I'm grateful that no matter how we may be feeling that we have the assurance of Scripture that you are with us. May that give us comfort and stability and peace. pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.